For more presentations like this, visit www.xenos.org. All right, so we're at the end of the book of Genesis. Genesis is the book of beginnings, and we've come to the end. The first quarter of this book was all about the beginning of the world, of the human race, the beginning of the separation between God and man, and also the beginning of God's plan to do something to bridge that gap that was there between us and him. We saw that central to the heart of that plan was God's selection of a guy named Abraham and the beginning of the Jewish people. And the final three quarters of this book narrows in on one guy, a guy named Abraham, and we've traced his family right down through the book of Genesis. We met Abraham, and then we saw that he had a son named Isaac, and we learned about him. And then we saw Isaac had a son named Jacob, and we spent a lot of time on Jacob the last couple of weeks. And if you've been here with us for the, the story of Jacob, you know that Jacob had a lot of wives, a lot of sons, and a lot of problems. <laughs> on the one hand, he had his favorite wife, Rachel, and her son, Joseph, with his coat of many colors. On the other hand, he had his three other wives who he didn't like, who he kind of got tricked into marrying, and they had 10 sons, and he basically ignored them, too. So he ignores his three wives, his 10 sons. He dotes upon his one wife, Rachel, who he loves, and her one son, Joseph. She has a second one, right? Sort of at the end of, um, uh, you know, 16, 17 years after the youngest son is born, and Rachel dies in childbirth, this boy named Benjamin. But for the most part, Joseph grows up with his 10 brothers. And we saw that the 10 brothers, they didn't like Joseph. They got tired of him being dad's favorite. You know, he would tattle on them. He'd show up and he'd say, hey guys, I had this dream where we were gathering grain and all your grain stood up and began bowing down to my grain. And they were like, you little snot. We will never bow down to you. You think you're going to be our king? Finally, we saw they got so sick. The 10 neglected brothers got so sick of Joseph that dad sent him out on a tattletale mission and they were many miles from home watching the flocks and they saw Joseph coming and they were like, we've had it, we're gonna kill him right now. And so they changed their mind at the last minute, they sell him into slavery and he ends up heading down to Egypt as a slave. And last week we read all about this. We saw Joseph in Egypt, he became a slave and then he became a prisoner. And for 13 years, he languished in slavery and in prison before one day, Pharaoh had a dream and nobody could interpret it. And one of Pharaoh's buddies says, hey, there's this Hebrew in prison who can interpret dreams. And they call Joseph out of prison and they clean him up and he stands before Pharaoh and he says, your dream means that there's gonna be seven years of prosperity followed by seven years of crippling famine. And Pharaoh, I'd recommend you, you set aside some grain for each of the next seven years so that you'll be ready for this famine that's coming. And Pharaoh says, that sounds like a great idea. And Joseph, I want you to be the man to head up this program. And last week we ended with this verse. Pharaoh said to Joseph, he said, only I sitting on my throne will have a rank higher than yours. And so he's elevated from slave and prisoner. 13 years from age 17 to age 30, he languishes. And then suddenly in one day he rises up and he's second in command of all of Egypt. That's what we covered last week. And so what does Joseph do with his new power? Does he go and punish his, his brothers who were mean to him for so long? No. Nope. Does he at least send someone back to Israel to gloat and says, you guys were so mean to me back in high school, but look at me now. <laughs> I'm rich and powerful and you're just ugly. Does he at least send a messenger back to inform his poor father who vowed that he would mourn the rest of his life because Joseph was dead? And the answer is no, he doesn't even do that. It's not that he lacked opportunity to do any of these things. No, Joseph picked a different route to deal with what had happened to him. He just tries to move on and forget it ever happened. Joseph tries to forget in Egypt. He gets a new name. Pharaoh gives him a new name. He calls him Zaphonath Paneah. No longer are you Joseph, you're Zaphonath Paneah. He gets a new wife, a daughter of the priest of On. The priest of On was the highest you could get 
in the Egyptian nobility, so he marries a woman of very noble birth. He has a great new job, second in command of all of Egypt. He loves it. <laughs> he has two sons over the next seven years of prosperity. The first son he names Manasseh. It's the Hebrew word for forget. And he said, it's because God has made me forget all my trouble in all my father's household. He says, forget you guys. I've forgotten about all of it. I'm forgetting, I'm forgetting, I'm forgetting about all that painful time in my life. And then the second son, he named Ephraim, which means fruitful. And he said, it's because God has made me fruitful here in the land of my suffering. God has made me forget and God has made me fruitful here. I've overcome what happened to me. He's trying hard to do what a lot of us do. You know, he's like, my name is Zaphonath Panea. I'm married to Asenath, daughter of the priest of On. I have a, a great job in command of Egypt. My sons are named Forget and Fruitful, and I have risen above you losers, and I've forgotten all those people in my father's household who were so mean to me for all those years. You almost wonder if, he's, if, he's, if he realizes his dad was a big cause of this. His dad's favoritism toward him is neglect of his brothers. You get the sense there's something there with him and his dad, sort of mysterious as things often can be. We're trying to think about our dads. And I think we try to do this too. Maybe we're just like, you know what? I've risen above what has happened to me. I've triumphed. Maybe we even put sort of a spiritual spin on it. We're like, well, God has given me this new identity and God has given me this new community and God has made me fruitful and God has made me forget all those things that happened to me or that specific thing that happened to me. And we put a spiritual face on it and we try to tell ourselves nothing happened and we try to move on, and that's all we know how to deal with our bitterness, how to deal with these painful things from our past. But is it true Joseph has really forgotten as he named his firstborn son? Or is it possible he thinks about that a lot more than he would like to admit? I mean, he names his son Forget You. Every time he calls his son's name, he's going to be reminded of the people that he claims that he's forgotten. I mean, it's a Hebrew name. Every other name in his life now is Egyptian, except for his son, who is forget you, and his other one, which is fruitful. He keeps insisting that he's moved past it, but it, he thinks he does protest too much. <laughs> and the more he insists that he's past his past, the more he reveals that he's not. Also, has God only made him fruitful here in the land of his suffering? It makes it sound like all this bad stuff happened to him and then God swooped in at the end in Egypt. Is it possible, though, that God was working the whole time, even before he arrived in the land of his suffering, that God had a plan for his life that he was working even back when he was living in Israel? And things that seemed accidental or even malicious by other people, even mistakes Joseph had made, is it possible God was working all things for good because he had a greater plan that he was working out here? Yeah, Joseph, by the end of this story, he's going to learn a different way of dealing with the horrible events from his past. And maybe some of us will too. That forgetting isn't enough. He needs to do more than forget. He needs to learn to forgive and even to love his enemies. And that's what you need to learn as well. He also needs to learn that God didn't just swoop in at the end, but God was at work long beforehand. And in fact, Joseph will be able to say at the end of his life that it was God, not his brothers, who sent him to Egypt. And that God was at work even then. Speaking of his brothers, though, we left them back in Canaan last week, and I said I'd come back to that story. And that's what we're going to do now. His brothers, meanwhile, are finding that getting rid of Joseph was a lot easier than getting rid of their guilt. Yeah, when they sent him off, they locked themselves up for the next 20 years. And maybe you can relate to them. Maybe there's something or some things in your life that plague you, that plague your conscience. Maybe there's things in your life 
that you think about a lot and you don't know what to do with it. Maybe there's things in your life that you think about every single day. Maybe not a day goes by that you don't think about it. And I'm not talking about the movie. <laughs> you know what I mean. I remember talking to a, a person one time who said that every morning for the past 25 years, they've woken up and the first thing they thought about was it. That thing that they did. And maybe yours isn't quite as extreme as that. But you've got things, things you did. Maybe things nobody knows about. Things like these brothers had. Maybe it was a secret that you and someone else or you and a group of people had and you promised you'd never tell anyone. And it's eating you alive. What's the thing you did that keeps plaguing your conscience? You look at how Joseph's brothers responded, there's a couple of different ways. One noteworthy one right out of the gate is Reuben. Reuben was the guy who was like, let's not kill him, let's just throw him in a pit so he starves to death. He was secretly going to go back and save Joseph later to make up for a big mistake he made earlier. Try to get in back in his good, dad's good graces again. It was really for Reuben's sake that he was trying to do this, not really for Joseph. But what does he say when he finds out that they actually sold him into slavery? He went to his brothers and he laments, the boy is gone, what will I do now? Reuben just feels sorry for himself. He plays the victim. What are you going to do now, Reuben? Why don't you go down the road and buy your brother back out of slavery? The slave traders really can't be that far down there. You know where they went. There's only one road. But no, he's too busy feeling sorry for himself to take any action, to take any leadership. He paints himself as a victim. And then later we're going to see Reuben rewrites this whole story, denying his part in it. And blaming his brothers. I guess that's one way to deal with your guilt. Denial, play the victim, be like, well, I was going to do the right thing. Point to your intentions and just feel sorry for yourself. Another interesting case is Judah. Judah was the one who had the idea to sell Joseph into slavery. And he first appears as a cold-hearted slave trader. On the one hand, he's a leader that the guys follow. But on the other hand... He sells his brother into slavery. He's, lead, he's the wrong kind of leader. And eventually he goes back and his dad vows to mourn for the rest of his life. And he just can't stand seeing every day the results of what he's done. And so it says, about this time Judah left home. And unfortunately, we don't have time for the full story of Judah in Genesis chapter 38. But it's a doozy. <laughs> Truly this is... A savage story about Judah and his sons that could be an episode of Mari Povich. <laughs> this is like a daytime talk show, okay? I'll give you some of the highlights. By the end of the story, Judah and his sons have married Canaanites. Most of his sons are dead. Judah hooks up with a prostitute and gets her pregnant. But he doesn't know that prostitute is actually his dead son's ex-wife disguised as a prostitute. And so then, <laughs> Judah finds out his dead son's wife is pregnant. He's like, let's burn her for adultery. And then she's like, Judah, this is your baby. <laughs> and Mari's like, Judah, you are the father. <laughs> and she's like, yeah. And he's like, no. <laughs> and everybody's like, what? But here's the important part, all right? When Judah realizes, when he's completely humiliated, and he realizes he's really messed up bad here, he does something we've never seen any of Jacob's sons do before. He admits that he was wrong. He says in Genesis 38, 26, she is more righteous than I am. He's learning to admit his guilt and that's one of the first steps in overcoming guilt is to admit you are wrong. And God takes 20 years of Judah's life. And over that 20 years where Joseph is in Egypt, God is transforming Judah. He's changing him from a cold-hearted slave trader to a leader who knows how to admit, I was wrong. 
And that's an important quality in a leader. Leaders don't just say mistakes were made, it's somebody else's fault. Leaders, especially spiritual leaders, know how to admit that they're wrong. And he's going to play an important role in leading this family to healing. So in summary, the 20 years of, of lost time, while Joseph spends 20 years in Egypt trying to forget what his brothers did to him, his brothers spent 20 years in Canaan trying to forget what they did to him. Everybody's trying to forget. The bitterness, the guilt, their solution is forget. And God knows that forgetting it isn't enough. He knows what happened on that fateful day cannot just be swept under the rug. No evil can be swept under the rug, especially things like this. And God knows that the only solution to it is forgiveness. And so God sends a famine to get the family back together. Because, you know, nothing gets the family back together. <laughs> like a little bit of suffering. That famine we saw last week, and we'll pick, we'll pick up the story, we're two years into that famine that Joseph predicted. All right, so he was 13 years, slavery in prison, seven years of plenty, building a family, two more years. So this is 22 years since it happened. Genesis 42, verse 1, when Jacob heard grain was available in Egypt, he said to his sons, why are you standing around looking at one another? I've heard there's grain in Egypt. Go down there, get some. And so Joseph's 10 older brothers went down to Egypt to buy grain. By the way, I'm covering a lot of ground, so I'm just trying to pick out the highlight verses here. You should read this whole thing on your own, though. But Jacob wouldn't let Joseph's younger brother Benjamin go with them for fear that some harm might come to him. You know, he had the 10 neglected, rejected, disposable brothers, but then he had Benjamin. This was the one son left from his beloved wife, the baby that was born when Joseph was 16 or 17 years old. At this point, 22 years have passed. Benjamin's in his 20s, but still, he's the favorite. And dad will not let him go. Dad is still playing favorites after all these years. So they head down to Egypt. And since Joseph was governor of all Egypt and was in charge of selling grain to all the people, it was to him that his brothers came. But check it out. They arrive, they bow before him with their faces to the ground, but, but they don't recognize Joseph. They don't know it's him. After all, it's been 22 years. He was 17 last time. He's 39 now. And in case you don't know this, when you're 17, you don't look the same as you do when you're 39. Sadly. Plus, he looks like an Egyptian. You know, he would have been, I mean, Hebrews, they had the big beards. The Egyptians, they hated body hair, so he would have had a shaved head, shaved face, um, and the Egyptians invented mascara, so he would have had makeup on his face, like the, especially the higher caste Egyptians would do. His name is Zaphnath Paneah. <laughs> it's not Joseph anymore. It's Zaph the mighty, the great Zaphnath Paneah. He even talks like an Egyptian. He speaks fluent Egyptian. He's, he interacts with them the whole time until the end through an interpreter. And so they bow with their faces to the ground. And it says Joseph recognized his brothers instantly. But he pretended to be a stranger and he spoke harshly to them. And he would say, <laughs> and then the interpreter would say, Zaphoneth Panea wants to know, where are you from? And they'd say, we're from the land of Canaan. We've come to buy food. And he would say, <laughs> Of course, Joseph still understood Hebrew. But he's keeping up this ruse. So the brothers are bowing. They're coming to buy grain. And all of a sudden, something Joseph had forgotten a long time ago comes back into his mind with, with brilliant clarity. It says in verse 9, and Joseph remembered the dreams he had about them many years before. He'd been trying so hard to forget that he had forgotten those dreams. Maybe more focused on what they had done to him, he'd forgotten about the thing that came before that. The dream. 
Remember the dream with, where the grain stands up and begins bowing down to Joseph's bundle of grain? And here are the brothers, and they're here to buy grain, and they're, they're bowing down before him. And he starts to realize God predicted this all in advance. God was at work the whole time. God gives Joseph the meaning of his own dream. And yet he remembers that other dream, there were 11 stars bowing down to me. There's only 10 here. My brother Benjamin, is he still alive? Have they done away with him like they did away with me? Joseph needs more information. And so he on the spot comes up with a way to go fishing for more information from his brothers and they take the bait. He said to them, you're spies. You've come to see how vulnerable our land has become. No, my Lord, your servants have simply come to buy food. There are actually 12 of us. We, your servants, were all brothers, son of a man living in the land of Canaan. And our youngest brother is back there with our father right now. And one of our brothers is no longer with us. Which is sort of ironic because he's actually with them for the first time in 22 years. They are all brothers, sons of a man living in the land of Canaan. And again, this is all through translation. But Joseph insisted, no, you're spies. And this is how I will test your story. One of you must go get your brother. I'll keep the rest of you here in prison. Then we'll find out whether your story is true. And so Joseph put him on prison for three days. <laughs> for I thought I'd... They did like 12 years there. <laughs> it's not going to hurt them to spend a couple of days in that prison. He's trying to show he's serious. He's probably also buying time to work out his plan for what he's going to do. But while these guys are in prison, Joseph does come up with a plan. A plan for how to deal with his brothers. What, what Joseph is going to do is he's going to come up with a series of tests for his brother. These tests are going to give his brothers a chance to grow they're going to show him, have they really changed? And as they respond to these opportunities he puts out there, he'll move more and more toward them, opening up to them. And if it looks like these are the same brothers as ever, he's going to rescue Benjamin and bring him here to Egypt and protect him from experiencing the same fate that, his brothers, that he experienced at the hands of his brothers. In addition to that, he's going to meet all their needs at no cost. And so he makes up his mind ahead of time, I'm going, to, I'm going to serve these guys, I'm going to give them everything that they need, and I'm going to give them a chance for the restoration of this relationship. On the third day, Joseph said to them, he brings them out of prison, and he says, I am a God-fearing man. If you're really honest men, choose one of your brothers to remain in prison. And the rest of you may go home with grain to your starving families. But you must bring your youngest brother back to me. What is he doing here? He's trying to awaken their consciences. He says, I'm a God-fearing man. I know you have starving families back in Canaan. How could I possibly leave you here in prison while your families are suffering back there in Canaan. I believe there's a God who sees what I do and I'm going to have to answer to him. He's helping the brothers to see that God is really there. He's trying to teach them about God. He's trying to awaken their consciences. He kind of casts another line in the water. And I think even Joseph is surprised at what comes back. Speaking among themselves in response to Joseph's speech about God, but about how he couldn't possibly do wrong to them, they said, clearly we're being punished because of what we did to Joseph long ago. 22 years later, this is the first thing that comes to their mind when something bad happens to them. We saw his anguish when he pleaded for his life, but we wouldn't listen. That's why we're in this trouble. Reuben speaks up. He says, didn't I tell you guys not to sin against the boy? No, Reuben. You said throw him in a pit so he'll starve to death. <laughs> Reuben has completely rewritten his part in this. But he goes on and he says, but you wouldn't listen and now we have to answer for his blood. Yes, 
God is calling us to answer here. And Joseph, at this point, realizes he was led astray by their cold, hostile demeanor when they attacked him and threw him in the pit and sold him to those slaves. He realizes now that these guys have been plagued by guilt for their entire lives. Every time something bad happened to them, they were wondering if now is the day that we will pay for what we did to Joseph. They're living in a prison of guilt. And suddenly these cold monsters start to change. They start to look like scared boys. And it breaks through to Joseph. As he sees somehow a glimpse into their minds. It's easy to demonize people we're bitter against. If there's a way to talk, if there's a way to see things from their perspective, maybe that could help us see things a little bit differently. And it says, Joseph turned away from them and began to weep. After 22 years, the the tears finally begin to flow. But his brothers don't see. When he regained his composure, he picked Simeon, had him tied up right before their eyes for effect. Simeon the second born. And he sent him back. But before he sent him back, he ordered the servants to fill the men's sacks with grain. And he also gave secret instructions to return each brother's payment at the top of his sack. Well, this is sort of an interesting dilemma. Now they're headed back. They have their silver. They have their grain. They've got a good reason not to come back for Simeon because they're going to look like thieves. So what's it going to be? They sold Joseph for some silver. If they've got the money and the grain and suspicions toward them, are they going to be loyal enough to come back for Simeon? Let's see. When the brothers came to their father, Jacob, back in the land of Canaan, they told him everything that happened to them and how weird it was. And then they bust out their grain and they empty their sacks. And each man's sack, there was the bag of money that he'd paid for the grain. And at this, the brothers and the father were terrified when they saw the bags of money. And Jacob, at this point, he just realizes, my family is done. We've stolen, these kids, they've stolen from Pharaoh. They sold Simeon. I don't know what they did, but I don't trust them. This family is over. We're history. And he exclaims, you have bereaved me of my children. Joseph is no more. Simeon is no more. Now you want to take Benjamin and everything is against me. I'm sure it felt that way to Jacob. The only problem is none of these statements are true. All 12 of his sons are alive and well. Joseph is second in command of Egypt. He owns all the grain in the world. Simeon is doing just fine under Joseph's watch. Benjamin is going to be just fine. He's going to live to an old age and have 10 kids. Everything is against me. How can that be? How can that be the case, Jacob? God is for you. And it's a lesson to remember when we're suffering that sometimes it feels one way and reality is another way. We need to fight to see things the way they really are. And we need to suspend judgment. In some cases, when we're despairing, we need to learn to trust the promises of God. That's one big advantage we have now. We have the whole word of God. They didn't have that. Well, Reuben speaks a word of comfort at this point. It's the last time we'll hear from Reuben. He goes, Dad, you can kill my two sons if I don't bring Benjamin back. (laughs) Jacob's like, Reuben. What good is it going to do to kill my grandkids? <laughs> and Reuben's sons are like, yeah. <laughs> no, he says, my son will not go down with you. His brother Joseph is dead, and Benjamin is the only son I have left, he says to his other 10 sons. <laughs> this is their whole life up to this point. They've had this for, for what, 25, 30 years. Well, it would have stayed there, but the famine continued to ravage the land of Canaan. And Jacob said, why don't you go back and buy us a little more food? And they're like, Dad, 
The man was serious when he warned us. You won't see my face again unless my brother is with you. Judah says, if you send Benjamin, we'll go. If you won't, we won't. It won't do any good. Dad, uh, why were you so cruel to me? Why did you tell him you had another brother? Ugh. Look, Dad, the man kept asking questions about our family. We answered his questions. How could we know he would say, bring your brother down here? Egypt is weird, Dad. <laughs> and then Judah steps up and he says this. Yeah, skip that slide. Judah steps up and he says, Dad, I offer myself as surety for Benjamin. I will take Benjamin under my care. I will offer myself in his place. And if we come back without him, I'm going to give myself over. You can have me. A lot better offer than killing his two sons. He offers himself in place of Benjamin. He steps up and he takes leadership. And they head down. When Joseph saw Benjamin with them, he said to the manager of his household, these men will eat with me this noon. As they leave the storehouse, Zaphonath Paneah takes one look at them, says something in Egyptian and leaves. And then the translator says, you're going to Zaphonath Paneah's house for lunch. <laughs> the brothers were terrified when they saw they were being taken to his house. It's because of the money someone put in our sacks last time we were here. <gasps> And so the brothers approached the manager of Joseph's household and they spoke to him at the entrance to the palace and they explained to him, they're like, look, we, we didn't steal the money. It was in our sacks. We brought it all back. We brought more money for grain. We brought all these fancy gifts from Canaan like honey and pistachios. <laughs> and Joseph's steward says, don't worry about it. I got your money. The God of your fathers must have given you that money. And he releases Simeon to them. And he brought, them, brought him out. And now they're just waiting for Zaphonath Paneah to show up for this lunch in his palace. And so Joseph came home and they gave him the gifts they had brought him. And then they bowed low to the ground before him. And after greeting them, he asked, <laughs> Zaphonath Paneah wishes to know, how is your father? That old man you spoke about? Is he still alive? And the brothers are like, yeah, our father, your servant, is alive and well. And then he looks at his younger brother, the son of his own mother, who he hasn't seen for 22 years, who was a baby the last time that he left, who's only a little bit younger than his own sons. And he says through translator, is this your youngest brother, the one you told me about? Joseph asked. And he remembers this boy, and he realizes he's a man now. I've missed his whole life. This is the brother I could have had a relationship with. And it's too much for Joseph. And he chokes out, may God be gracious to you, my son. And before they can even translate, he rushes out of the room because he was overcome with emotion for his brother. And again, Joseph wept. He went to his private room, he broke down, and he cried his eyes out. He sees the brothers came back for Simeon. He sees they brought Benjamin. He sees they brought the money. And after washing his face, he came back out, probably reapplied his mascara. <laughs> he was under control now, and he ordered, bring out the food. Well, the waiters served Joseph and the Egyptians at their own table. The brothers were served at a separate table. You see, the Egyptians thought shepherds were gross. They wouldn't even go near them. How different from the Canaanites that wanted to intermarry with them and teach them all their religious practices. And maybe now we start to see that as Joseph's brothers and their family were assimilating into Canaanite culture, God knew the one place 
that he could keep them separate? Egypt, where they hate shepherds, and they would stay far away from them. We start to see God's hand at work in this whole thing. He knew they didn't have the willpower, so we got him out of there. Because Egyptians despised Hebrews and refused to eat with them. And Joseph filled their plates with food from his own table, but he gave Benjamin five times as much as he gave the others. He says, I wonder how they're doing with this favoritism thing. What would they think if Benjamin got five times as much food? Would they hate him like they hated me? Should they pass this test? Yeah, they do. They feasted and drank freely with their young, youngest brother, enjoying the feast of Zaphonath Panea. Well, when his brothers were ready to leave, Joseph gave these instructions to his palace manager. He said, I want you to put my personal silver cup at the top of the youngest brother's sack. And then, when they leave, chase after them and stop them. And when you catch up, ask them, why have you stolen my master's silver cup, which he uses to predict the future? <laughs> what a wicked thing you have done. <laughs> so they do. And the brothers are like, what are you talking about? Look, if you find his cup with any of us, let that man die. And the rest of us, my Lord, will be your slaves. We did not take that cup. We brought the money back. Why would we steal the cup? And so the steward says, that's fair, but only the one who stole the cup will be my slave. The rest of you may go free. So he starts searching the bags, and he starts with the oldest. And he searches one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. And he gets to the 11th bag. And the brothers are feeling pretty smug, and he opens the bag, and the cup was found. And they realize, we thought we were away. And now, dad's going to kill us. And yet here they are. You have the 10 loved brothers, the, sorry, the 10 neglected brothers, the unloved brothers, the disposable brothers. And you have the one brother that dad loves, the favorite son. And the 10 have a chance to dispose of the one. Joseph has recreated the scene from 22 years ago. And he says, what are you guys going to do? You going to send him back to Egypt and tell dad there was nothing we could do about it? He stole the cup. Or have you changed? And it says, when the brothers saw this, they tore their clothing in despair and loaded their donkeys and returned with Benjamin to the city. Well, they get back, and Joseph's still in his palace when Judah and his brothers arrived, and they fell to the ground before him, bowing again. What have you done? Don't you know a man like me can predict the future? The man who stole the cup will be my slave. The rest of you may go back to your father in peace. Joseph gives him a second chance to leave the favorite son behind. Now they see that this guy's serious. They can't talk him out of it. What will they do? And this is where Judas steps up and gives a speech that covers about 14 verses. I'm just going to read part of it here for you. But Judas steps forward and says, My Lord, we have a father who's an old man, and his youngest son is a child of his old age. His full brother is dead, and he alone is left of his mother's children, and his father loves him very much. My Lord, I guaranteed to my father that I would take care of the boy. I told him, if I don't bring him back to you, I will bear the blame forever. Joseph didn't know this. So please, my Lord, let me stay here as a slave instead of the boy. Let the boy return with his brothers. I couldn't bear to see the anguish this would cause my father. So instead of giving up the favorite son, no matter what it would cost dad, Judah says, I offer myself in his place. And Judah, 
for the first time in Scripture, offers himself as a substitute for another person. It's no surprise that he went on to lead this family. It's no surprise that his great-great-great-great-grandson, Jesus Christ, would do this on a much larger scale. He would step forward and say, take me instead of the boy. Take me instead of her. I offer myself up as their substitute. And Joseph is satisfied. He sees they've changed, and he can't control himself anymore. He could no longer control himself before all of his attendants. And he began to cry out, He's saying, out, all of you. But all they can see is Zaphonath Paniah is really agitated. He's shouting something we don't understand. Everyone's leaving. <laughs> it's just us and Zaphonath Paniah. <laughs> and then he broke down and wept. So now Zaphonath Paniah is crying really hard. <laughs> So loudly, the Egyptians could hear him in the other room. And they're like, man, Egyptians are weird. <laughs> and finally, Joseph turns to them and says in Hebrew, Ami Yosef. <laughs> and the brothers are like, Is my father still alive? And the brothers are like, <laughs> his brothers were speechless. They were stunned to realize Joseph was standing there in front of them. Please come closer, he said to them. And they're like, <laughs> they came closer. And he said, I'm Joseph, your brother whom you sold into slavery in Egypt. And the brothers are like, uh. <laughs> and Benjamin's like, you did what? <laughs> Not the way they wanted him to find out. <laughs> But Joseph says, no, don't be upset. Don't be angry with yourselves for selling me to this place. He's thought a lot about this. It was God who sent me here ahead of you to preserve your lives. This famine that has ravaged the land for two years will last five more years, and there will be no plowing or harvesting. No, God has sent me ahead of you to keep you and your families alive to preserve many survivors. And then he says it a third time. It was God who sent me here, not you. And the brothers are like, uh, that's a different perspective on your suffering. God was the one who allowed me to be born into that family. God was the reason, you know, we had to flee. When I was six, from my great uncle, he wanted to murder us. And my other uncle, he wanted to murder us too. And then my brothers did all kinds of messed up things. And my mom died on the side of the road, giving birth to my brother. And then I was abused verbally and physically and assaulted. And I was in human trafficking. And I was sold as a slave. And I was sexually harassed. And I was, some woman attempted to rape me. And then I was falsely, I was slandered, and then I was thrown in prison wrongfully. And God was the one that sent me here, not you. God was at work behind the scenes in all of it. God caused all things to work for good in my life and in your life. He's the one who made me an advisor to Pharaoh, the manager of his entire palace, the governor of all Egypt. Now hurry back to my father and tell him this is what your son Joseph says. God's made me master over the land of Egypt. Come down to me immediately, Dad. You can live in the region of Goshen where you can be near me with your children and grandchildren and your flocks and your herds and everything you own. I will take care of you there, Joseph says. And then weeping with joy, he embraced Benjamin 
And Benjamin did the same. And then Joseph kissed each of his brothers and he wept over them. And after that, they began talking freely with him. And there was a lot to catch up on after 22 years. I'd like to just close, well, you know, the rest of the story you can read for yourself. They move to Egypt, they settle there, they get their own land, the Egyptians don't want anything to do with them. Jacob dies and is buried back in Canaan, and, and Joseph dies at the end of his life. And he says, I want you to bury me back in Canaan. One day God's going to send us back there, he says, and that's where I want to be married. Let's just say a few words at the end here. First of all, about dealing with guilt. What are some things we can learn here? Well, you need to stop denying what happened or blaming other people. You can't rewrite the past because of what you intended to do or what your motives were or what you were forced into. You just need to admit, I was wrong. Denial is not the way to deal with this, guys. And then confess your guilt to God and receive his forgiveness. If you've never done that, this is why Christ offered himself as a substitute on the cross. He was taking your place. He said, let him go, take me instead, like Judah did. You need to confess your guilt to God and receive his forgiveness, and that's a forgiveness that's permanent. It's permanent. And once you've done that, it's not that you need to go back to God and get forgiveness again. No, you need to go to him. Maybe you need to admit what you did wrong, but you claim his forgiveness. You affirm the forgiveness that he's already offered you. I think it's a good idea also to confess to a person. To confess to a person. And, you know, there might be consequences. I mean, the brothers, they definitely paid a price for what they did. They lost out on a lot of time with Joseph. They suffered a lot just wrestling inside their own minds. They commit, Judah committed a lot of mistakes trying to run away from what he did. There might be, there might be consequences you need to accept, and that's, that's fine. It's still better than denial. But confessing to a person, I think, is important because it puts a face on it. You don't need to tell everything to everybody, but somebody needs to know. In fact, I'd urge you to, if there's something you're hiding, I'd urge you to come out with it tonight. Otherwise, it's going to be too easy to stuff it back down again. And fourth, when dealing with guilt, you need to stand firm on the grace of God and receive his healing. There's times where you receive God's forgiveness and then you start feeling guilty again about that thing. And some people, what I used to do is I would reconfess. And what God says is, no, you just need... To, to say, you know, those, those guilt feelings are false. God has forgiven me. Learn some scripture passages about God's grace. In fact, at the end of Joseph's brother's lives, 50 years later, his dad dies and they're like, hey, uh, dad said um, that, um, um, please forgive us. Don't kill us now that dad is dead. And here this was, this was actually, this was about 17 years later after this whole forgiveness episode, and they still are feeling guilty about it. And Joseph starts crying. He says, no, I forgave you. My perspective on this is totally different than yours. And so you need to learn to stand firm on his grace and speak truth to yourself, and that's going to be part of how you receive healing for what happened. And on the other hand, dealing with bitterness, stop denying what happened. Same first step as guilt. Some of us, the way we deal with wrongs done to us is we try to deny what happened. We think that's the only way of dealing with it. No, you need to admit something wrong happened. And that's okay to admit that. You know, that's reality. Reality is your friend in this situation. Understand that trust is different than forgiveness. You know, Joseph didn't trust his brothers right away. In fact, he wanted to see some things from them before he really opened himself back up to them. They weren't safe yet. And um, there might be a process of rebuilding trust once forgiveness has been granted. Verbalize that forgiveness to the person if appropriate. If not, it's at least good to you know, write a letter that you'll never give to them. Stating what happened. 
and also saying, I forgive you. And then you can figure out what, if anything, you should say to them. A lot of people I know have found that pretty helpful. I've found that helpful in my life too. Instead of making them pay, move toward them in love. Do you see how Joseph, right off the bat, he chose, I'm going to meet their needs. I'm not going to punish them here. But he moves toward them with generosity and also with opportunities to rebuild the relationship. He felt like that was appropriate in this situation. And so instead of dragging out the past and punishing them in their mi- your mind and taking shots at them and rooting for their failure, you can pray for their success. You can be kind to them. You cannot rehash the bad things that they did, either mentally or to other people. And it's these little decisions that slowly help the feelings of forgiveness catch up with the decision of forgiveness that you've made. And finally, be patient. It takes time. You think you've forgiven. All the feelings come back. You have to go back to God and say, God, I, apparently there was still something there, but I, I want to just recommit to forgiving this person. And I confess my bitterness to you, and I'm thankful for your grace. And if there's anything I need to do, I pray you'd show me. But if not, then I'm going to move on here. And that is the story of Joseph and his brothers. Yeah, Lord, there's a lot of wrong happening in this world. We know it's not the way it's supposed to be. You've told us that. God, there's wrong things that other people have done to us. And thank you that we don't have to be shackled to bitterness for the rest of our lives, but that we can learn the freedom of forgiveness, God, really because you've forgiven us. I pray you teach us to forgive, Lord. Also, there's a lot of bad things that we've done, whether we admit to it or not. And I'm thankful that you provide a solution for that as well, Lord, and that it's not forgetting about what happened, but you fully squared up and faced all the evil that humans have ever committed and you place that on your son. Thank you that Jesus voluntarily offered himself in our place. And I pray for anyone who hasn't received his forgiveness that they would do so tonight. I also pray for those of us that are living in bondage to that thing that we think of all the time and that we know we need to tell someone. I pray you'd give, give those people the strength to tell someone tonight. Amen. This study was recorded at Zenos Christian Fellowship and is copyrighted. You may freely copy and distribute it as long as you keep it intact and do not sell it.